Hello, and welcome to Golden Grenades, a podcast about birds with stories from those of us who worship them, all set against the cheery and uplifting tableau of the end of the world. My name is Kit, aka Yolo Birder off Twitter, and this week my special guest is Nicola Chester. Nicola is a writer known to many for her regular columns in the RSPB's members magazine Nature's Home and for her writing as one of the Guardian's country diarists. Her first book was on otters for the RSPB Spotlight series on iconic British wildlife and she has just published her memoir On Gallows Down through Chelsea Green Publishing. Her writing features in several anthologies including the season's books edited by Melissa Harrison Red 67, published by the British Trust for Ornithology, and Women on Nature, edited by Catherine Norbury. Nicola is also a secondary school librarian and runs the School Environment Club. Nicola, hello and welcome to Golden Grenades. Hello, it's a pleasure to be here. (laughs) Thank you so much for coming on. I almost feel like I've known you for ages because I've been reading your work in the RSPB magazine and in The Guardian for, for so long, and then obviously our interactions on Twitter, but we've actually never met. No, likewise, I I feel feel I know you as well. Your writing career started in a rather unusual way, didn't it? Could you tell us about that? Yes, it did. It is. I mean, I've I've always written, but I sort of, I I wrote for myself, really, keeping diaries and things like that. But I entered BBC Wildlife magazine's Nature Writer of the Year Award, and to my surprise, I won it. And with that, I took that to my local newspaper and then to the RSPB, and somehow convinced them that I could do a column. And oh my goodness, nearly 17, 18 years later, I'm still doing it. (laughs) Fantastic. You're doing something right then. Do you think that was a sliding doors moment? Was that something, you know, if you hadn't won that competition, would you have pursued a career in nature writing, do you think? I think it it, kind of was. It was something that I always wanted to do. And I think a a key moment for me was when I was actually, I was protesting on the Newby Bypass, a road that destroyed really my childhood playground. And I remember waiting to speak to a Radio 4 presenter and came to my turn and I was full of passion and fury and ready to engage people with why this road shouldn't be built. And I completely froze. The words just wouldn't come out. And I was absolutely mortified. And I, I remember going home and having a good old cry. And, uh, and then I picked up my pen and I wrote and I wrote. And I think from then on, I thought, this is how I do it. This is how I communicate. And yeah, I'm still doing it that way. <laughs> One thing I was wondering, do you have to tailor your writing style for different audiences For example, I mean, do you have to write differently for the RSPB magazine than you do for The Guardian? Yes, I do. So the RSPB, I I get a brief. So it would be perhaps what their campaigns are doing at the moment. You know, if there's something on about night skies, then I'll be asked to write about that. And it's quite a broad piece. Yeah. And then when I'm writing for The Guardian, it's more trying to... Oh, this is going to sound really cheesy, but trying to paint a picture with words. So you're sort of really trying to take somebody into a moment that you've experienced and, yeah, bring them with you, I think. So, yeah, very different ways of writing. And then my local newspaper column, again, that can be a bit more, a bit more informative, perhaps, a little bit more local based. And I have to be a little bit more careful what I say there as well. I don't want to upset anybody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, especially if they live close to you, I'm sure. I remember a good few years ago now, because it was when Nature's Home magazine was still called Birds, the RSPB magazine. And you did a story in there about how you had two dead tawny owls in your freezer. <laughs> 
whatever happened to those tawny owls? Did you get them stuffed? <laughs> I didn't. I'm afraid I buried them in the hope that I would um, be able to dig them up and have the skull. They, they were a little time apart, and um, one that had, that I'd buried had been clearly dug up by something, and the other one I just it just disappeared. I don't know, but yeah, there, there was some, um, especially when children were at the local primary school there was a real spate it hasn't happened for a while but a, a real spate of people leaving me death things on the doorstep <laughs> <laughs> so yeah tawny owls had a barn owl once what else polecat and a stoat yeah they always arrive in a bag for life which is rather an odd one <laughs> <laughs> but they are a marvelous way of showing people and seeing yourself things that you would never normally get that close to and I remember taking especially the tawny owls down to school in the playground and um, just letting the children, you know, stretch the wings out and feel the talons and those sort of their brillo pad feet. And, you know, it, it was just amazing. It was almost as if, you know, these, these, they were expecting the birds to come alive again. Yes. Yeah. It's a funny habit to have. What is it with you nature writers and dead things in your freezer? Because I remember Amy Jane Beer came on here and she was telling me she had all sorts of dead birds in her freezer as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you've just recently published your second book, your memoir on Gallows Down. And Stephen Moss, who does a, a, an annual roundup of, of his favourite nature writing of the year, has just named that as one of his three top books this year. So congratulations on that. That's, that's great. <laughs> so for those people who may be listening who haven't read it or picked it up yet shame on you go and get it but also could you just maybe tell us a little bit about it and how it came to be yes goodness me that was a, such an honor it's a memoir but um i didn't set out to write a memoir that's come as a a bit of a surprise actually because you know not had a particularly exciting life <laughs> but um it's it's a memoir of a place i think a place in time and how i fit into that and how nature fits into that so it's it's also how how i've got to know a place so its subtitle is place protest and belonging and i think it's about how you engage with a place belonging it's a very tricky concept and it shouldn't be about coming from a place i think it's it's how you engage with it and for me, that is getting to know my wild neighbours and the, and the landscape and its history. So it's a lot about it's it's about the rural history of a place as well. And also, I think once you once you fall in love with a place and get to know it, sooner or later, uh, if we're talking about wildlife and nature, it's going to come under threat. So it's what you do about that. Uh, so I've done a fair bit of protesting in lots of different ways from you know, putting my body on the line, really, to letter writing, to galvanising local groups. I think there's a lot in there about how you can resist loss, however you can, as well. Yeah, and it's it's also the hill that raised my children as well. <laughs> so, um, yeah, there's a lot in there about family. It's a wonderful book, and, and like you say, it covers all of those things. I love the, the sections on the protests. Incredible what they're doing up trees and what they can manage to get up trees to to try and protect them. As I was reading it, I was thinking, you know, it's amazing that people did that for a road, yet everything that's going on in the world right now is so much more than a single road in terms of the, the, the level of destruction. And uh, It was a lot of people, an awful lot of people, um... I mean, one of the big marches that happened, one report was 10,000 people on that march, which is as, as many trees that were felled, you know, and, and this was 25 years ago. It, it, that, I mean, that shocks me, really, not, not just because I'm, I feel very old suddenly, but uh, 
you know, it's still going on now. We're still having that and we really shouldn't be. Yeah. But I think, you know, there's certainly a lot of hope in the book as well, you know, when you're when you're describing these protests and what you're what you're hoping to achieve. And and no spoilers, but there's some wins in there as well along the way, I think. Yeah. And there's there's many wonderful passages in the book about birds. And obviously, like me, you're a bird lover. And again, no spoilers, but I loved a couple of the passages where you describe certain birds. You describe red wings as bringing the colour of hawthorn berries tucked under their wings like a portfolio of what they've come for. I love that. And the you described the crochet loops of a spotted flycatcher, which, you know, if anybody's seen a spotted flycatcher feeding, flying from the same branch over and over again in these little loops, it's just so perfectly descriptive. But I loved particularly the sections of the book describing how you tried to overcome feelings of displacement and loss when you moved to a new area by learning the names of the wildlife of the area you now found yourself in. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's it's a real key for me. It's 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 like a, a real key that you that's how you open the door into a place is is finding out what's there and knowing its name and not necessarily proper name as it were, but um, but what it means to you as well. Yeah, and the, the names that you know the children give to things as well. But I th- I think that's really really important. I mean, the moves that we've made from different places have been very short distances. But for me, it's it's been a real wrench to move from a place that I've, I've learned to know all the trees and the plants and what lives there. And then I've been taken away from the place. Life moves you on. Um, and then to, to, to refine those things in a place. It's joyous and it's it's life affirming and it, it, it does put you in that place with everything. Yeah, I really like that the way you thought right, I've moved and I feel wrenched away from something, but I'm going to learn all the plants and animals and, you know, and then that's how I'm going to engage with this new place and uh, learn to love it. I I thought that was great. At this point, I'm going to ask you my zero punches pulled question. Zero punches pulled. Which is a question that is very pithy and getting to the heart of the matter and probably something you've never been asked and unlikely to be asked again. But you mentioned there about the names that children give to things. And there's a section in the book where you describe teaching your children about wildlife and helping them learn by giving them names that that they name themselves or that that, that they will relate to. So the great tit becomes the telltale tit. The yellow hammer was the picnic bird. Chiff chaff was chip shop bird. So my question is, if you were allowed to rename any British bird, which would it be? I, oh, yeah, I've never been asked this before. Um, <laughs> it's a really good question. <laughs> and several images flashing through my mind. I, it would be the starling. Okay. Um, we've got a little little population, a mini flock, a murmur, I suppose, and it's not quite a murmuration. <laughs> of about seven or eight birds and they'll sit on the chimney pot and they will sing and mimic as starlings do all the different songs they'll sing all the birds that have gone from this place which can be heartbreaking sometimes oh yeah they'll also do things like the the toddler down the road the particular way that she screams it would <laughs> they will do that and uh the gamekeeper next door his dogs or his whistle they'll they'll do that as well really? so i'd like to rename the starling the spangle speaker ah perfect <laughs> yeah i love it they are spangly as well they are <laughs> that's great i like that 
<laughs> I often sort of find myself, you know, because moths have got such great names, haven't they? You yes. know, frustrates me with birds sometimes that they've just got s such rubbish names like coot. You know, yeah. it's just <laughs> kindly, you know, I would have that as a fuggle footed rag packet because they're so <laughs> angry and they've got horrible feet. Um, I love there's a friend of mine off Twitter who calls oyster catchers northern mud pokers, which I quite like. <laughs> Good. Um, but the one I think that is the most undersold bird is the hen harrier. I mean, that does oh, yes. it no favours at all, does it? You know, Definitely. hen harrier just conjures up that sort of image of it being like a, a bird that's a nuisance, you know, bothering your poultry. <laughs> yeah. You know, I would have that like renamed in an instant silver ghost <laughs> wing or something. I don't know, oh, you yeah. know, something much, much more appropriate for such a magnificent Absolutely. creature. <laughs> so anyway, enough of that tomfoolery. So in On Gallows Down, I love how throughout your life you describe how certain species of birds have come to represent a certain emotion or a feeling for you, something that a lot of people will relate to, I'm sure, especially yeah. the first bird that you're going to talk about today. So tell me about bird number one. Bird number one. one, one. Okay, yes, my bird number one is the nightingale. And I think I first came across this bird as a result of a terrible thing my dad did, actually. So I was sort of, I was still living at home in my early teens, deciding what to do with my life. I, I realised that I couldn't go and be a farmer, which is what I wanted to do, or work in conservation. And I, I was trying to save up money to go back to university. And I'd been to the Twyford Down Road protests and had come back for Easter and to find that my dad had not, I mean, he'd done this not in bird nesting season, I must say that, but he'd cut down the hedge between the field next door and our house, which was the last house on the edge of town. And he coppiced, in effect, this hedge. And to my eyes, he'd absolutely butchered it. And, and this is where I knew there were voles, there were all sorts of birds, there were hedgehogs. Uh, imagine that now. Um, there was all sorts of wildlife living in this fantastic hedge. And I was a walking, environmentally sensitive area. And, he, you know, I was very angry. And then I come home for my birthday. And literally, I, I, I woke one morning to a bird singing outside. And I'd never heard a song like it. And quickly discovered, quickly worked out that it was a nightingale. And then for the next three years, this little bird arrived on my birthday, or on the night of my birthday, or, or the day after it was a very exacting bird and sang its heart out all through the night and all through the day pretty much so I forgave my dad because I kind of figured that <laughs> that this bird flying over had seen something that I couldn't see had seen this sort of habitat recreated you know I was studying Keats in in university down the road and there was this bird singing and singing but all around us um, at that time, um, trees were being felled, not less than, oh gosh, half a mile away, if that, for the Newby Bypass. So the bird was also singing against this backdrop of chainsaws. And it sang like no other bird I've ever heard before because I realise now it was trying to sing a mate down from the sky. It was a a pioneer bird there were no other nightingales near it it was it had found this perfect habitat had no competition and it was singing and singing and singing really for its life it never ever managed to sing a mate down the sky it, it didn't have a mate i'm certain it was the same bird coming back the notes were so 
beautifully enunciated and, and, and sung out. It was this fantastic torch singer. And I've heard Nightingale since, and I have never heard one that sang like that bird. It was this sort of virtuoso performance for nobody's benefit. And that was heartbreaking. Um, you know, it never got to pass on these singers' genes. And it was a loss to a world that never knew its loss. And I still now, I, I have to go a bit further to hear Nightingales now, but I cannot listen to one without having a little tear. <laughs> a fantastic image and, and amazing that, you know, out of that anger that you had with your father, this incredible mm -hmm. bird appeared to sing. Yeah. And I think yeah. in the book you describe how it's come to almost, you know, the Nightingale for you has almost come to symbolise loss, hasn't it? I, I, think, I think this is it. It's a bird that goes back so far in our culture. You know, and I, I mean, I defy anybody to hear that, especially at night when there are, you know, other sounds are dampened and, and there are no other birds really singing. To not be moved by that, I think it's incredible. And, and the fact that, that the nightingale, it's come to represent reason for not ruining habitat, I suppose. And yet we still do it. It's like the equivalent, I don't know, of destroying some fantastic cathedral or, or a painting. You know, you wouldn't you wouldn't do that but yeah and it's got yeah. such a rich history in terms of literature and it's almost become a little bit a bit like the hen harry i mentioned earlier being a post poster boy for persecution yes. the nightingales become a poster boy for you know declining species and because they sing such a beautiful song and they've come to represent so much there's lots of events and and cultural things happening around nightingales so you know fingers yeah. crossed that maybe maybe some of this will take a bit of traction and yeah because that's all powerful stuff that's that's resistance to loss isn't it and um, yeah. that's activism in its own way yeah. yeah maybe we need to chop the tops off a few more hedges <laughs> i think so <laughs> <laughs> no no i'm not advocating that <laughs> and in the book it seemed to me that the nightingale came to represent loss for you, but then there was the red kite that seemed to symbolise a bit of hope in yeah. the darkness when you were in your dark moments. If you saw a red kite, that, that you know, they're coming back from the brink, that's a good sign. Yeah, I think nature does this to you, you know, <laughs> but it, there's always hope. And I, and I think, you know, you can be absolutely devastated by loss and completely brokenhearted, and then there'll just be something else to think, oh, look, actually... It works. We can do this. It's within our power, you know, and, and nature itself. If you give it a chance, it, it will bounce back and um, jump into that vacuum. And yeah, that, that fantastic soaring bird. I mean, it's, we get them over the house all the time and they're just they're just amazing to watch that lovely delta tail and the way they just balance on the on the wing. It's yeah, yeah, just lovely. Yeah, beautiful birds. OK, let's move on. Can you tell us about bird number two? two. Yeah, so my bird number two is the lapwing, or green plover, as they're quite often known by older people here. Oh, I just love a lapwing. Um, they're just such elegant birds, and they've got that sort of vintage quality that I like, sort of, I've got a bit of a thing for the 1940s and that sort of sparse elegance, and I think they've got a bit of that movie star quality about them. Yeah, I've never thought about that, but you're right. Just, yeah. yeah. <laughs> You know, and it, how in certain lights they change the, the, the colours, come out that little bit of mauve and the sort of petrol sheen on that. And they are the bird that I have tried locally to to really do something about. Now that's been a roller coaster. <laughs> I live on um, 
a big farm estate. We rent a cottage here, an old farm worker's cottage. We've been here for nearly 20 years. I try to get engaged with the farm here, which is a big arable farm. There are sheep, arable and shooting. That's what the estate does. And between the estate manager and the gamekeeper, I've tried to sort of engage them and with the farmer as well in doing little things to try and protect these birds. And we're losing them because of the way we farm. But the key thing for me was that older farmers that I, I talked to through my local newspaper column and um, just in the village would, would tell me how they would go out and spot the nest, which are very, very hard to spot. And there's not so much a nest, is it? It's just like a little dip in the ground nearly always lay four eggs and when the points are all pointed in what the the older farmers would do is take one egg home for themselves to eat and then leave the other three and mark the nest with a with a little flag and then when they go out into the field when they're drilling the field or doing any farm work or field work um, they would go around the nest or even pick the remaining eggs eggs up move them one furrow over and then carry on. So they would always be protecting that bird. And the payoff, I suppose, was an egg to take home. <laughs> so on modern estates with these great big, often satellite-driven tractors, it doesn't happen. It, <laughs> I can't put it any more gently than the, the nests are just drilled into the ground with everything else. And the farmers here don't really recognise a lapwing. They don't, they don't really know what they are. So I try to do a bit of, bit of PR for the lapwing, mark the nest with little flags. But this in itself was a problem because we realised that the rooks and the ravens and the crows, clever birds that they are, and there are a lot of them here because it's a shooting estate. So those sort of birds are kept unnaturally high because there's so much um, carrion lying about all over the place. But they learn to spot the flags and they learn to spot that, you know, the flags meant food. <laughs> so it's, Best intentions. It's, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so we took the flags away, and it's 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 been hit and miss. We have had chicks. We've we've had the RSPB up to ring some of the chicks, and to a certain extent, um, we've had some success. But the numbers each year are dropping. You can see it, you know. But a, a couple of years ago, we had well, actually it was more than a couple of years ago because my son was at primary school, and he came home one day and said, "Mum, there's this bird making a noise, and I don't know what it is. It's making the." the the sound of a whale and um what else did he say um it sounds like my electronic yo-yo <laughs> <laughs> and as as a nature writer it i think or anybody that, that tries to describe the song of a lapwing it, it, it's almost impossible it's really, really hard to do but he hit the nail on the head because i knew exactly what he meant yeah and I, I said come on show me and we went out and we'd found three pairs nesting on a field very close to us and I got permission from the um, from the farmers to go mark the nest. I didn't put little wet white flags on, but we marked the nests, and the tractors there went round them. And yeah, they haven't come back, but we had one year where we think they raised chicks. Good for you, yeah. mother of lapwings. That's great. <laughs> Absolutely. And your son's right though, because he always used to remind me of Star Wars. You know, the pew pew kind of just like there's something sort of a TV show or a cartoon or a toy. You know, just really like nothing else in the in the countryside. Um, it's completely otherworldly, yeah. You've got a couple of other birds coming up that are otherworldly as well, but I'm, I'm not going to spoil those. <laughs> they make some strange noises. But yeah, I hope you have more successes with your lapwing protection <laughs> next year. Keep fighting the good fight. So let's crack on. Bird number three. three, three. <laughs> yeah, so bird number three is a blackbird. 
to me, they're, they're the everywhere birds. They live where we live. And there have been times when, especially in my early 20s, when I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life. I couldn't do the things I wanted to do. And I ended up working in office jobs or temping jobs where I wasn't really happy. I was indoors, which isn't my natural environment. And I thought places, you know, in my lunch hour, I used to come back filthy because I'd gone and found some <laughs> bit of waste ground or got caught out in the rain. So I'd come back after lunch times <laughs> looking like I'd gone through a hedge backwards, which I've probably had <laughs> but, but what I would always find wherever I was was blackbirds you know you look out of an industrial estate window and, and there'll be a blackbird if there's a, a tiny bit of greenery or a, a bit of waste ground behind the industrial estate there'll be blackbirds and I think what they do is they remind us that our towns can be woodlands and we can live like that and I think that's really important because they are or they were a woodland bird. They, they, you know, they've got these fantastic big dark eyes, light gathering eyes for living in sort of darker environments. So they've got this lovely ring of gypsy gold around around their eye, and that, that whistle as well. Their, their song, which is so evocative of summer evenings, and it's just like liquid honey, isn't it? It's just gorgeous. But it's very akin to a human whistle with that low quality that carries through woodland. And yeah, so I just think it reminds us that, or certainly me, that wherever I am, in many ways, the world is a big wood and it should be. You know, we, we need to bring nature into our cities far, far more. I live very rurally and, you know, we often talk about the countryside and the town, but I'd love to see a blending of that so that everybody has access to that. It's so important to saving nature and saving ourselves, I think. And yeah, the... the the blackbird represents that for me. My favourite time of day is that blackbird pinking hour where, <laughs> where the blackbirds are sort of settling down a bit nervily at, at dusk and they're pink, 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 pink. That's when I like to go out. <laughs> I think you almost have to be still and stop and appreciate them for what they are rather than just going, oh, there's a blackbird. But if you do stop and look at them, A, they're stunning. And then if you stop and listen to them, they're incredible. Oh. And you know, people in, in maybe urban areas, if they did take the time to stop, yeah. pause and appreciate a blackbird, yeah. then hopefully, you know, they would they would see and feel what you feel about them. I, I love the whole Kate Bush connection as well. I think Kate Bush, her, she's always been a bit of a muse for me. But yeah, I think she sees that in blackbirds as well. <laughs> <laughs> They're great birds and I will I will definitely try to spend more time appreciating them. Yes. <laughs> Right, let's move on and let's talk about bird number four, which is a belter. Bird number four. Bird number four is my red 67 bird, actually. Uh, it's the woodcock, and these sort of woodland waders. I used to see them in, in spring roading, and they do this fantastic circular, I suppose it's a boundary marking, isn't it? And this wonderful noise that they make, this sort of bore, bore, bore. and then the squeal. It's a good impression. <laughs> can't get the squeal right but there we are and uh yeah they're just fantastic they're they're very bat-like i think to, to see them and another one of those otherworldly birds yeah. <laughs> locally now again i don't see them in spring and summer but in winter we do get quite a few here and uh, i've had some very close encounters with them which has been absolutely magical we live just below the highest hill, nearly in southern England. And it's a fantastic hill fort, big flat top. 
and it seems to attract a lot of waders at night. So we get snipe up there, we get golden plover, occasionally great partridge, and loads of woodcock. And I've been lucky enough to go out with a former friend who's a gamekeeper. We don't, we fell out. I'll let you imagine why. Yeah. But uh, yeah. <laughs> so we used to go out counting the birds. So we trundle along in the Land Rover with a big lamp, and then once we'd spot them. Occasionally, I'd be allowed to sort of get out and try and creep up to get close to one. And it's the most incredible experience. So we would we'd hold the lamp on the edge of where the bird was, so you're not blinding it. And they would very patiently just carry on their nightly activities. And they, they're like a dumpy little wood arc, I, I would describe them. They look like a piece of earth that's just moving along with this fantastic bill probing the ground. It's, it's like a slow sewing machine. And I'd be able to get crawling <laughs> on my belly. I'd, I'd be able to get right beside them wow. and watch this happening. Just unbelievable. And, you know, when they lifted their bill up, you could see the very, very tip of it moving. And then they would carry on sewing the ground. And, and as I get up, got up to move with it, I'd be pressing my hands on the ground and the water would be oozing up from where the bill holes had been. It's just astonishing. <laughs> did, did they not mind you being so close? No, no. I mean, it's just astonishing. There are so many up there. And, and what we found was if, if they were spooked, they will go up once and then back down again. And you could get quite close to them again and they would be very, very tolerant. You know, and I'm not I'm not sure why, because other birds around them would be off. The golden plover would be off and, and, and the snipe. But yeah, I mean to get to get that close to a woodcock is unbelievable. And you know, if I'm if I'm out walking in the woods, invariably if I do see one, it's because I've disturbed yeah. it by accident. I don't know, they're just a piece of earth. They are leaf mould when you see them like that. It's just like a piece of earth has come loose and drifted off. Wonderful bird. That's the only time I've ever been that close as if just for a brief second when you've accidentally disturbed one and flushed it but they they are they're camouflaged there they're not like other waders in the, their foliage you, you know it's it's more like it's <laughs> owls and you know other birds of the night that we may or may not be about to talk about their <laughs> plumage is that the camouflage is is incredible and like you say they become the ground become the leaf litter but you know and you don't see them until you you're right there i love the and you wrote about this in Red 67, actually. You, you, you did a beautiful page um, for the book on the woodcock. Beautifully descriptive, but loads of, loads of facts in there as well about them. I love the fact that they refuse to walk over obstacles, like fallen, fallen branches and things. They'll, they'll, they'll go around them. And unfortunately, this gave them this reputation, didn't it, in the 16th yeah. century as being a foolish bird. And so, you know, Milton yeah. and Shakespeare just wrote about them almost like court jesters, like, you know, because they were stupid, because yeah. they, you know, they were so daft, they would walk straight to, to where people would catch them. The reason they're in Red 67, obviously, is because their numbers are down so much. And I think the numbers were down, the last I'd heard, about over 70% since the 70s. Pretty massive declines. And I never understand, because yeah. obviously we have this year-long population which is in massive decline and then in winter time like you mentioned we get this influx of thousands and thousands of woodcock that come here from you know europe to come and overwinter over here with or without a gold crest piloting them across the north sea and then they're just shot they're still a game bird and i know some estates and some shooters choose not to shoot 
woodcock, but you're still allowed to. And it's like, I, I never understand. How do you know it's one that's just come over and it's not a breeding bird from the UK? They're down 70%. Just leave, leave yeah. them alone. They're not shot on this estate. Um, like plenty of other things are. But I just can't believe it that it is still going on. How you can distinguish one bird as being a, a breeding bird versus a, a non-breeding visitor bird, you, you, you can't. It's crazy. And you know they've got these tiny little pin feathers, don't they? Yes. And in the past, they have been used for painting with, you know, the tiny, tiniest little pointy feather. And they used to use the, a, a woodcock pin feather for painting the gold stripes on a Rolls Royce. Oh, yes, that's right. I've got one of those feathers, very precious one. Yeah. <laughs> the other thing that pin feathers are used for, they used to use them for dissecting moth genitalia to accurately, you know, some species of moth, well, a lot of moths all look the same. So... But apparently, if you dissect them using a woodcock feather, particularly the genitalia, you'll be able to name what that moth was before you pulled it apart with a woodcock feather. <laughs> Just crazy. I, I loved when in Red 67, you, you described the, the woodcock as feeding nightly woodcock gather like groups of Victorian philosophers, wings clasped behind backs, isolated in thought. I love that image of them, you know, just wandering around. They're always looking at the ground, aren't they, really? I mean, even when they're in flight, their, their, their bill is pointed down to the ground as if they don't want to leave it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right then. I may have given the, the game away on this one a little bit, but tell us about your fifth and final bird. Bird number five. five, five. Fifth and final bird. And yes, there is a bit of a theme here. Uh, it's a nightjar. Yeah, it has that sort of same oh, otherworldly quality, I think, and that cryptic foliage <laughs> camouflage like that. So I think for me, nightjar is, is a magical bird. It, it, it really is. I at first came across it as a child when I was about 11 or 12. And my, my playground was Greenham Common, which is this vast area of heathland that I knew as a wide open space and before long fences went up and 96 cruise missiles were brought in with four spare. <laughs> it astonishes me why you would need four spare nuclear warheads when you had 96 but there we are. <laughs> and along with the cruise missiles came American servicemen and their families and peace women as well. So our, our little sort of quiet and ordinary <laughs> common was completely transformed sort of over a matter of months really. And I was familiar with the nightjar then. We used to hear it. We'd go up and hear them in the evening, this fantastic churring sound that seems to come from all directions at once. And my friends and, and I were quite irritated by the whole taking over of our, of our common, our open space, and particularly with these American servicemen who were on the other side of the fence with guns, which I'd never seen before. You know, they were in our space. And I think the only way to kind of feel that that we wanted to let these these Americans know that actually this was our place and um, we wanted it back and they had no right to be there was to tell stories about the place. Um, we cottoned on quite early that, that they were quite interested in, in the whole idea of being English and, you know, these schoolgirls with their funny sort of little quite witchy stories. So we used to tell them spooky stories, um, my friend and I, about this old goat herder and, and he used to say to them, so come quick, which is a, a bit like, there wasn't a very good impression, but um, the, the sound of the nightjar and how he would then strike up this sort of strange churring sound. And of course then 
as we knew would happen, the American soldiers that would be on their well-lit airbase looking out onto a dark common, and they'd hear this bird. And um, they were actually quite spooked by it. We, we, we managed to do a good job there, you know, because especially as well when the, um, the, the farmer there who had goats, um, the goats would escape onto the common, so the goats would come out and, uh, you know, it was almost like we, we'd created this fantastic ghost story that actually was happening in front of them, <laughs> which was quite cool at the time. <laughs> but then I remember driving out with friends one night, I think one of us had a car, and you would see these massive convoys of the nuclear nuclear warheads. I mean, they weren't actually on the lorries at the time, but it was like practice preparing for, you know, the four-minute warning, I suppose. Not that would give you much time to do anything, but they would they would be drive these convoys around the country lane. So occasionally you'd see them and they'd be either very poorly lit or not have lights on at all. And these huge American vehicles would come thundering down the lanes like some, oh gosh, nightmarish ghost train. It was, and then and then go. And then you'd be sort of stood there thinking, what, did I really see that? Was that just some awful nightmare? And then in the background, I'd, he- I'd, I'd heard the nightjar striking up. And I remember thinking at first, oh, it's a night jar. Listen, listen, friends, you know, and I was chatting and I think, that's, that's a bird. And I remember this evening where I was listening to this bird and my friends were going, that's not a bird, what are you on about? And I doubted myself. And, and suddenly this bird that had been so familiar to me was making this really strange mechanical sound that seemed to be coming from all around. And it just suddenly took on this nightmarish quality and it sounded like a Geiger counter. And, you know, at the time with these nuclear missiles in place, there were stories locally about cancer clusters. There was that fear that we'd grown up with about, you know, what would happen if, if these nuclear missiles went off, we were living right next door. You know, and it, it just all comes to his head. And I found that actually the bird that I had frightened these American servicemen with was now frightening me. <laughs> probably some justice in there some karma somewhere <laughs> years later I kind of got to reclaim this bird as well remembering its fantastic qualities I, t- I took my children up onto the common which is now given back to the people all missile defenses and the poor American servicemen that were probably very nice people <laughs> have all gone even the peace women have gone and I take my children up to listen to the to these birds and I have this I mean, if, if you watch Night Jars, you'll probably know these little tricks, but you have these fantastic tricks that you can do that call the birds to you. So I can still perform this magic trick where I can say to the kids, hey, kids, look, just wait, just watch this. <laughs> and with maybe a pair of, um, pair of white tissues and a clap of the hand, I can bring these birds right to me. And they're, because they're so curious, they will hover in front of you. I'm sure you've experienced this. And, um, and they will sort of hover up and down vertically. And it's almost like a, like a marionette, the puppet right in front of you. And then the birds will fly up around your head and make this incredible noise. You know, my children were really impressed by this magic trick. Yeah, <laughs> rightly so. It's a, that's some trick. Yeah. Not many people can pull that off. <laughs> that's amazing. I did do that once. And wow. I, I, I was there on my own. It, it just ripped a receipt out of my pocket or something and waved them around <laughs> and it came straight at my head. But I, it freaked me out, you know, because I'd seen Bill Oddie doing that on the telly when I was a kid. <laughs> but yeah, it, it, it didn't quite do what you're, what you're describing. Uh, I do go a couple of times every year to my local 
sort of woods where there's a quarry and um you know there's an area there where there's dwindling numbers but but last year actually you know I had a really good experience you know there was there was a couple of birds and they were right close and you know but they're, they're yeah. almost like ventriloquists aren't they you know you hear the the sound but you can't quite you can never place where it's coming from yeah it's that quality that is really spooky but quite magical at the same time yeah it's great that your kids appreciate that trick fantastic <laughs> Well, Nicola, you've chosen five fantastic birds there to survive this environmental Armageddon that I've created. He is to be coming our way anyway, whether we like it or not. But which one of these will you choose to be your companion, the demon on your shoulder, to wander the barren wasteland with? It's such a tough choice. It really is. Um, but, but I think it would have to be the nightingale. And I think, I think it's because of that song and that absolute hope in that voice. You know, the memory of that little bird will never leave me. And I think it's also saying, live, 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 do these things. And, and I think it, it, will, it will spur me on to keep resisting the loss however I can. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure, Nicola, to finally meet you after all this time. And I was just going to say that in your book, there's a passage early on where you, you write that you've decided at a young age to save, champion and celebrate the wildless in any way an ordinary girl could. And I don't think anyone could argue that you seem to be achieving that. And long may it continue. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks so much for coming on. Well, that was the last episode of the year, folks. Hope you all have a very Merry Christmas. The Golden Grenades will be back in the new year. Till then, bye for now. Bye.